1 John chapter 2, verse 24, John writes, Therefore, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Remember in John's epistle, we've been considering the topic of fellowship with God and with each other. And remember, we talked a little bit about the difference between relationship and fellowship. Relationship is what you have by virtue of birth. Relationship is what you have by virtue of proximity and intimacy. How can a person really know that they know God? John offers a series of tests. Number one, the follower of Jesus wants to keep Christ's commands. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Number two, the follower of Jesus loves the brethren in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Number three, there was the follower of Jesus pays attention to spiritual growth in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And number four, the follower of Jesus refuses to love the world in verses 15 through 17 in chapter 2. And number five, now the follower of Jesus guards against antichrists and false teachers in verses 18 through 23. And now there's a sixth test. The follower of Jesus allows the gospel to live inside your heart and to live inside of your life. And so think about that. Think about what you've just heard. There is a test of obedience. There is a relational test of love. There is a spiritual growth test. And so as he goes through these various tests, it becomes an opportunity for you to ask and answer those questions. Do I love the Lord? Do I love his word? Do I love his people? Do I refuse to enter into a love for this world? Do I have a keen and sensitive sense for those people who would misdirect me? And remember here now, the follower of Jesus allows the gospel to live inside of their life. It's a question you should ask yourself. Do I allow the gospel to live inside me? Well, what does that mean? We might ask the question a little bit differently. If you've grasped the truth of the gospel, if you understand the truth of God's word and God's message, are you living it out 
in your life. Or tragically, we might even ask it in a worse way. If a person isn't living out the gospel, there's good reason to believe that that person doesn't know God. Now, I want you to think about what I just said, because John has already made it abundantly clear that the person who doesn't want to follow Christ's commands probably doesn't know God. The, the person who doesn't love the brethren probably doesn't know God. The person who says that they follow Jesus but have no, have no attention to spiritual growth, who absolutely have little or no discernment, and the truth doesn't matter to them then there's huge problems. John's promise is given after the test. So there's going to be three basic things that we see in this passage. First, a test. Does the gospel live inside of you? Second, John gives a promise. If the gospel lives inside of you, you have eternal life in verse 25. Then John gives a sobering warning. There are some who will attempt to seduce you away from Christ, away from the gospel in verse 26. But then God has made a provision for us, protection for us, support for the genuine believer, the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of your heart in verse 27. So we abide in the gospel. Look what it says in verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. You might look at that text and say, well, Gino, I'm, you just read the text and I don't see the word gospel anywhere in the text. Well, you would be exactly right. The word gospel doesn't appear in the text. So how do we know that John's speaking about the gospel? What exactly had John's readers heard from the beginning? Read the text again. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What have they heard from the beginning? Is it from the beginning of this letter? Is it from the beginning of John's gospel? Remember what, what, what I've already told you. John wrote this. But I'm going to suggest to you that John was pastoring the church in Ephesus. And as he's pastoring the church, he's also authored the gospel of John. And by the way, when you author the gospel of John, it makes perfect sense to me that John is going to be teaching the things that are contained in the gospel of John. And if you'll remember in Matthew's gospel, it goes back to the birth of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus to prove that he's king. In Luke's gospel, it goes back through the genealogy of Mary. And again, John's gospel pushes it back even further. In John's gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So how do we know John's speaking about the gospel? What exactly had John's readers heard from the beginning? I want you to think about what you're reading and the context in which you're reading it. Remember earlier, the very two verses before verse 24, in verse 22 and 23, who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either, for he who acknowledges the Son 
has the Father also. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about false teachers who were denying the identity of Jesus and the message of Jesus. False teachers were denying the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That which is heard from the beginning is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. The gospel of truth in verse 21. The word of God itself in verse 21. The gospel of the apostolic message. This very gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. This is the gospel of salvation in Titus 2, chapter 11. And what is the evidence of salvation? I want you to think about this. For some misguided people, they thought that the evidence of salvation <laughs> was maybe speaking in tongues or water baptism. Or some religious rite that the evidence of being saved is that you could say something in just the right way. Or you could do something in order to prove that you really are a, a Christian. But here's what John is basically saying. The true evidence of salvation is that you really have a relationship with God and Christ. That's the real evidence of salvation. It would probably do us well to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bible, you might just sort of turn to the left. And if you don't know where 1 Corinthians is, just go past Romans. And 1 Corinthians 15 is all the way in the back of, of the book, in, in the last chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures." And that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. When Paul writes these words, he basically says the gospel is the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he's basically pointing out that the gospel has never lost its power. It still has the power to change the heart and change the life. This is the gospel of grace. It and I want you to think about this for just a moment. The gospel of grace and the gospel as it's described in the Bible involves a person. The person of Jesus Christ. It involves... So, so it involves a person, the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus of history. It concerns his death for our sins according to the scriptures. 
It concerns his resurrection according to the scriptures. The gospel is simple. So simple that a child can understand it. What is the good news? That human beings are sinners in need of a savior. The good news is that God sent a solution to the problem of our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. But yet it's so profound, so profound that even God's greatest minds have yet to plumb the riches of its content. Lloyd-Jones said it was, quote, open to all. The most respectable sinner has no more claim on it than the worst, unquote. The gospel is not presented to humanity as an argument about religious principles. The gospel isn't even offered as a philosophy of life. Christianity is presented as a fact. Certain facts, historical facts that really happened, fulfilled realities experienced. I was reading a blog where an atheist talked about Christianity as being a fairy tale. And it's interesting to me because over two generations ago, G.K. Chesterton would have said, you're exactly right, it is a fairy tale. But it, and even though that sounds blasphemous on the surface, G.K. Chesterton said, it's a fairy tale in this sense, that our minds are clouded and polluted. It's a fairy tale that's true. It's a fairy tale that's true in the sense that the human being's mind is so clouded and disturbed and misted over by this world, the corrupt world, the violent world, the, the lost world, the sin-infested world, that it's blinded human beings to the truth, the true reality of the sinful circumstances that human beings face. C.S. Lewis called it the same thing, that the gospel is God's story that's true. And so... In chapter 2, verse 24, when he says, Therefore, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. The word abide is very interesting. It's the Greek word meneto. It comes from the Greek word menos or meno. It meant to dwell or to remain or to continue or to stay. So when he says, therefore, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. The implication of the word abide is the idea of permanence. And so here in connection to the gospel and faith and doctrine, it's the idea of the permanent presence of the teaching inside of you that you heard from the beginning, the thing that you heard from the beginning was that God sent his son Jesus from the beginning to be the solution to the problem of sin. The word contains a sense of permanence. The idea being, if somebody asks you, where are you staying? And you might say, I'm in a trailer, or I'm homeless, or I'm here or there. Those kinds of dwelling places imply a lack of permanence. 
What he's talking about is a permanent place where you get to go every single day. The word contains a a sense of intimacy with the truth, intimate with the gospel. And so here's John's point. If you are intimate with the gospel, then you're going to be intimate with the son who's the subject of the gospel. And you're going to be intimate with the father who sent the son in order for you to be intimate with him. The word abide appears in John's gospel in the very well-known passage in John chapter 15, verse 18. Most of you are familiar with John chapter 15, verse 5. If you abide in me and my word abide in you, you can ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. So what does it mean to abide? In, In chapter 15, verse 5, it says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who abide, same word, in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus uses that same word, abide. What does it mean to dwell, remain, abide in the gospel, in the Son, in the Father? Well, it must at least mean that you believe that Jesus is God's son. How do we know that? 1 John chapter 4. Look what it says in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. Just turn the page. 1 John chapter 4 verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. And he in God. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? It must mean that you believe that Jesus is God's son. It also must mean that we receive Jesus as the Savior and the Lord. We know that. Turn back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 12. Look what it says. I write to you little children. Wait, that's not it. It's 1 John Chapter 1, in verse 3, it says, and, and this we declare to you, that we have seen and heard, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, We receive Jesus, and I want you to think about this. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you are well on your way to passing all of the tests that he's talked about. We do what Jesus says because we're saved. We love what Jesus loves because we saved. We pay attention to spiritual growth because we're saved. We refuse to love the world because we're saved. We love the truth because we're saved. We're willing to expose lies because we're saved. We continue to believe the gospel. Yeah, you're starting to get it. Jesus provides the believer with spiritual nourishment with health and life, 
We relate in love to one another as a body of believers. The result is this passionate participation in each other's life. Now, I want you to think about this. Because if there is no passionate participation in each other's lives, if the only life you want to participate in is your own life, then you're not acting like a saved person. Thomas Brooks said, quote, it's not the mere touching of the flower by the bee that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time on the flower that draws out the sweet. And that's exactly right. The bee pauses on the flower, draws out the nectar. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? You believe that Jesus is God's son. You receive Jesus as your savior. You pass the tests of love and truth. You continue to believe the gospel. You believe that Jesus is the source of nourishment. True faith produces inside of you a desire to live differently. To think differently. To act differently. To walk differently. Here's the point. Thinking, acting, walking isn't what produces spiritual life. Spiritual life produces a way of thinking differently, acting differently, talking differently, living differently. Saved people act like saved people. What happens when unsaved people start acting like saved people? They live a life of hypocrisy and duplicity and failure. Because the worst thing, the worst thing, the worst thing, the worst thing that you can ask an unsaved person to do is to act like a saved person when they're not saved. Does that shock you? It shouldn't. Here's what we do with our unsaved family and friends. We invite them to be saved. (laughs) We invite them to be saved in the sense of believing the gospel because it has to be the Holy Spirit who transforms your heart. People who drift back into selfishness and carnality and wickedness, the person who abandons Christ or just simply drifts away from Christ, you just drift away from him, you will eventually find yourself embarrassed and afraid because in the back of your mind, you're wondering if Jesus is going to show up because you know that it's true. You know that when the Bible says he came the first time, you have every reason to believe he's going to come again. And so sometimes in those dark and lonely moments of wickedness and rebellion and disobedience, you just sort of look up and you go, is today the day that Jesus could come back and find me? So it prompts a question. Are you... Abiding in Christ and in the gospel. Remember what abide means. Live, dwell, permanently remain 
Andrew Murray said, quote, Abide in Jesus, the sinless one, which means give up all of self and its life and dwell in God's will and rest in his strength. This is what brings the power that does not commit sin, unquote. I love that. Especially if you've ever prayed and you go, Lord, I want to have power to live a life that's different than the life that I'm living in. I want to change my mind. Well, guess what? You can change your mind, but you're not going to change your resources unless you're connected to those resources. And then we have the assurance of the present possession of eternal life. In light of that, remember, in light of that, in verse 25, it says, and this is the promise that he's promised us. Eternal life. We go back to the theme of the book. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with Jesus. Fellowship with each other. Our fellowship is in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he's promised us, eternal life. Who promised eternal life? Jesus promised his followers eternal life. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. How many of you think that eternal life means temporary life? I'm so glad no hand went up because they, eternal can't mean temporary. Temporary is the exact opposite of eternal. Can it mean probationary? It can't mean probationary. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In John 3, 36, it says, And all, this is Jesus speaking, And all who believe in God's Son have eternal life. John 5, 24, it's worth turning over to there. Turn to John chapter 5, verse 24. If you have a, ever had a list of things that you need to memorize, this is one that you're going to need to memorize. Because you're going to go back to this passage over and over and over again. In John chapter 5, verse 24, it's Jesus speaking. He says, most assuredly, which is Jesus' way of saying, I'm telling you the truth. Now, when Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth, does that mean he lied about everything he said up to this point? No. When he says, I'm telling you the truth, or most assuredly, he's doing it for emphasis. And because he's making emphasis, then you should allow the emphasis to have its effect. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour, wait, that's not it, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word, singular, that means the whole message, and believes in him who sent me, you believe the Father sent the Son, Jesus' words, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. And in case you're wondering what that means, 
Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3. Look what Jesus says. Jesus is praying to his father about his disciples and about the future. In verse 2, he says, as you've given him authority over all flesh, that's Jesus, that he should that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. When Jesus says that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, Jesus is making the claim that he has the ability to impart this life. And in verse 3 it says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus doesn't define eternal life in terms of just simply living forever and ever and ever and ever. He's describing a quality of life. A character of life. He's talking about the life that he himself has. Jesus defines eternal life not in terms simply of living forever. But of loving forever. And being loved forever. Jesus says and this is eternal life that they may know you. That they may know you. What does that mean? Again, you know the Father. You you know him and he knows you. You love him and he loves you. You know Jesus and he loves you. Eternal life can't mean simply living forever. It has to mean loving forever and being loved forever. And so he makes the promise... When we abide in Christ, we receive the very life of Christ. Do you understand what that means? Jesus is saying, I'm going to impart to you the kind of life that I have. And what's the kind of life that Jesus has? It's one that knows the Father. It's the one that resists sin. It's the one that sacrificially enters into death. But even when you die, you come back to life. Now we understand what Jesus said in John chapter 11 when he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And you might be thinking, well, but you just said that there's going to be a death. Yeah, there's going to be a death of the separation of of the spirit from the body. But he's talking about the quality of life. Remember what the quality of life is. You know the father and you know the son. Will death separate you from your relationship with the father and the son? Can't. Impossible. Can death separate you from fellowship with the Father and the Son? Not really. Because the moment that you take your last breath, the moment that you close your eyes, the very next moment you open your eyes in the presence of God forever. Now, look, look what it says in verse 26. We're admonished, beware of the seducers. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Think about what you just read. 
These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Does it surprise you that some people are going to want to trick you, lie to you, seduce you about the nature of God, the identity and the mission of Jesus, and the promise that he's made? John has already given us three reasons for writing the epistle that we've already learned. That we might have fellowship in chapter 1 verse 3. That we might have joy, chapter 1 verse 4. That we might not sin, chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. And now, so that we might overcome error. So that we might not be fooled later. In chapter 5, he's going to say, so that you can have assurance. If you turn the page again to chapter 5, verse 13, look what it says. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can be ambivalent about it, or that you need some extra persuading. It's so that you can know that you know that you know that you have eternal life. The false teachers that John has in mind were making some severe claims, and John is addressing it. We know that there were a group of people in that area who were called Gnostics. And I've used this word in the past. Remember, Gnostic stands for the word knowledge. And so the false teachers that John has in mind were making claims about things that weren't true. The Gnostics believed that in a kind of a mystical dualism. This mystical dualism was informed from two sources which may not be of interest to you. But one is Plato and the other one is Zoroastrianism. Mystical dualism is the idea of Star Wars, the force. That there is a good and bad, or there's a strong force, and there's a weak force, there's a dark side, and there's a light side, and that these two forces are pitted against one another. So the false teachers in John's day believed that, that there was this God who created another God who created another God who created another God. There was an emanation after an emanation. And finally, there was such a series of emanations that there was an emanation that was so far removed from the original God that this emanation forgot about the original God and created the heavens and the earth. They believed that this false God created the world and matter and that matter was intrinsically evil and because they believed that matter was intrinsically evil, they couldn't bring themselves to believe that God would send Christ and that Jesus came in a real physical body because your physical body was corrupt and evil. For many, there, 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 there was a, a higher authority than the scripture or the revelation of God. It was the subjective authority of a, of a person's feelings or thoughts or ideas. In broad terms, we might say, just like we do today, you have two kinds of people. 
there's one group of people who judges all things in light of what the Bible says. And then there's another group of people who judges everything that the Bible says in light of what they think. The whole world is broken down into those two categories. Those who allow the Bible to judge them and those who feel like they get to judge the Bible. The error of the Gnostics ran the gamut of a number of different things. Let me give you the most simple thing that will help you. The Gnostics believed that there was information and revelation apart from the Bible, apart from Jesus, and apart from the gospel. That was ultimately their shtick. And so the Gnostic heresy in John's day really took two basic forms. The first was a false teaching called docetism. You may not know what docetism means, but docetism comes from a word that meant to appear. This was a group of people who believed that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he really wasn't human. Remember, in their worldview, matter is evil. And so in their worldview, when Jesus walked along the beach, he never really left footprints in the sand because he really wasn't there. It only appeared that he was there. Then there was a second group of people who were related to a false teacher named Serenthus. And Serenthus taught that when Jesus lived, that the Christ spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him shortly before his crucifixion. What both of them have in common is that they corrupted what the Bible had to say about the truth. And now we begin to understand why John completely says over and over again, Jesus is real. We t remember the opening passage? The life was manifested. In, in the opening verse, it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. This message is to refute what these people were saying that, that you couldn't really touch him because he wasn't really there. And this is one of the reasons that John affirms that matter is not evil. The problem isn't that matter is evil, but rather that human nature is sinful and that Jesus had a real body and he experienced a real death. And a real resurrection. And that's the real gospel. And so what John basically says. Is that the great seduction of the false teachers. Was the claim. That they had additional truth. Not known by Christ. Not known by the apostles. And by the way, that's what every false teacher and every false doctrine will claim. 
You need something more than the Bible. You need something more than Jesus. You need something more than what Jesus said and what the apostles held. Here's John's claim. You have everything you need in Christ. And what Christ entrusted to his apostles is true. Here's John's claim. Everything that Jesus said about himself is true. Here's John's claim. Everything that the apostles have said about Jesus is true. This is one of the reasons, again, that John affirms that matter's not evil. And so, in that verse, in chapter 2, when he says, in verse 26, these things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. You should underline that word, deceive. It's the Greek word, Planonten. Are you familiar with that word? Planonten. We have a, a word in our language that we get from that word, planet. You, think about it for just a moment. In the ancient world, when they would see lights moving across the skies, it was moving. They were wandering. Remember, in their, in their way of thinking, you would see the planet moving. This word is related to that word. It means to lead or to guide. But in this particular context, it means to lead astray. It means to lead in the wrong direction. It means to go in the opposite direction. So who's the false teacher? The one who leads you away from what the Bible says about God, from what the Bible says about Jesus, from what the Bible says about the gospel. And by the way, every false teacher, every false doctrine will get it wrong about God. They'll get it wrong about Jesus. They'll get it wrong about the gospel. The false teacher is going to try to convince you that when the Bible says this is the way to be acceptable to God, that there's another way, that this isn't the only way, that this isn't the exclusive way. They might go so far as to say when Peter, James, John, and Paul invite people to have a right relationship with God in Christ, that in order to be acceptable to God, you have to be acceptable to God on the basis of what God has done. He has sent his son Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for your sin. They were affirming that there was another way to be acceptable by, to God, apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. And by the way, in the original language, in the Greek language, when it says... These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. It's in what the Greek language calls the continuous action. That means that this is an ongoing problem. They are continually teaching false doctrine. 
They are continually trying to seduce you. There is a continual sense in which there's going to be a continual group of people who will continually try to lead you away from what the Bible says, what the gospel says. Now remember what we've already learned. The false teachers not only left the fellowship, but they left the faith. And when they left the fellowship and they left the faith, you become their target. Do you realize that most people who are Mormons, do you realize that most people who are Jehovah's Witnesses, do you realize that most people who are involved in cults, they used to belong to a Bible-believing church? Do you know that? You probably know people who were raised in a church or they heard the gospel, they read the Bible, and they got sucked into some fantastic story that they were willing to believe. John knew that the most effective weapon in combating false teachers and false teaching is a deep and an intimate knowledge of the gospel. It's a deep and an intimate knowledge, friendship and fellowship with Jesus. A deep and an intimate knowledge and fellowship with the Father. So what will guard you from seduction? Abide in the gospel. Abide in Christ. Your greatest source of safety is to live near to the word of God and to the word made flesh. You know, you've heard it from the beginning. Jesus left the glory of heaven to save you. If God really sent his son into the world to save humanity and to impart eternal life, If God sent Jesus to be a sacrifice, and if God sent Jesus to be a sacrifice for sin and to experience the punishment of a cruel crucifixion, being nailed to a piece of wood, having his flesh lacerated and his blood poured out in the most cruel way possible, does it make any kind of sense to you That if there was another way to be saved, that God would have said, hey, you know what? There's another way that doesn't involve my son dying and that doesn't involve crucifixion. What would cause Jesus to leave the glory of heaven to come to die on a cross for you? Here's what the false teachers were saying. And that was a waste of time. It was just a waste of time. Jesus never had to leave heaven, never had to die on the cross, never had to come back to life. There's another way for you to be accepted by God. And tell us what way is that? Well, we can give you this secret information but it's going to cost you. Contrast that with what Jesus said. Freely you've received. Freely give. Jesus said, everything that my father told me, I've told you. 
the apostles said, everything that Jesus told us, we've told you. That if you want to experience love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, you can come to Christ and he'll forgive you. He loves you. And so John says, the believer has to be on constant guard against the false teacher and false teaching. And what exactly is at stake? Remember the great themes of John's letter. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with each other. What does false doctrine, false teaching, false teachers do? It interrupts your fellowship with God and your fellowship with each other. The Antichrist and the false teachers depart from Christian fellowship, verses 18 through 21. Deny the Christian faith, verses 22 through 25. And then deceive the Christian faithful. That's what we're going to see in verses 26 and 27. Thomas Akempis said, If in everything you seek Jesus, you will doubtless find him. But if you seek yourself, you will indeed find yourself to your own ruin. For you do yourself more harm by not seeking Jesus than the whole world and all your enemies could do to you. I like that. The reason why I like that is this. If you think that false teachers can hurt you, you're right. They can. If you think that loving this world can hurt you, you're right. It can, but the thing that's going to hurt you more than anything, more than everything, is when you make the simple decision that I'm not going to abide in Christ, that I'm not going to dwell in the gospel, that I'm not going to live in the riches of the truth that's been given to me by the word of God. And so that's why John says we have an anointing of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verse 27. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. Remember that word. Lives in you permanently. To remain, to dwell permanently. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true. And it's not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. So what is this anointing which you've received from him? It's the Holy Spirit. The anointing remains, abides. Jesus remains through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to teach us the truth about God. Jesus himself said that he would send another, that he would send the comforter, and that the comforter would be with you and in you. And Paul confirms that it's the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, where it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, verses 16 and 17. In, in Romans chapter 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And if children, then heirs. And if heirs of God, then joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we might be glorified together. John says you're children of God because God sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. Well, how do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? the way that you know that you're saved. 
Remember, you're saved by faith, through, by grace, through faith, and that not of yourself. You receive Jesus by faith. And when you receive Jesus by faith, you receive the Holy Spirit by faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us truth. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. He's called the seal and the guarantee of truth. The Holy Spirit is our down payment that assures us that we are abiding in Christ. Usually, if you give a down payment, it's not the full amount that secures whatever it is that you're looking for, especially at Christmas time. Has anyone ever said, hey, you know what? We have a layaway program, and if you put a certain amount of money down, we'll hold this for you. This isn't Jesus saying, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit on a layaway plan to secure your place in the future. If the Holy Spirit is your down payment, can you imagine what the full... Fullness is going to be like. So, what does it mean when he says, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And then earlier he says, and you do not need that anyone teach you. Well, does this mean I can quit my job right now? That I can go, you know what? I wanted to get to this portion of the scripture so that I could resign as your pastor. You don't need me anymore. That's actually not what it means. Let, let, let me help you just a little bit with this. It means the true Christian can spot the lying antichrists. And that we don't need another teacher because the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth is teaching us the truth about the Father, about the Son, about the gospel. We don't need another teacher because the Holy Spirit, the spirit of, teacher, the spirit of truth teaches us. What does the Holy Spirit teach us? The Holy Spirit points us, us, points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit tells us to remain in Christ. The Holy Spirit says, remain in what Jesus has taught you. The Holy Spirit says, believe what the apostles have taught you about Jesus. It can't mean that we don't have need for pastors or teachers. Otherwise, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 through 16 makes no sense whatsoever. But just in case you're wondering, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, it says, I'm sending him to you for this very purpose that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. He's talking about Tychicus. And then he says, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who's one of you, they'll make known to you all the things that are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And 
Jesus, who's called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They've proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers so that you can stand perfect, complete in the will of God. It's okay to have pastors and teachers who love you and pray for you and encourage you and support you. That's not what he's condemning. What is John saying? He's condemning the false teachers who are playing you. Who say to you, you need something more than the Bible. You need something more than Jesus. You need something more than the gospel. It means that the true follower of Jesus can discern right from wrong. And good from evil. And truth from lies. I want you to think about that statement for just a moment. Does this mean you know everything about everything? No. But but must it mean that you have the ability to go, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. I want you to think about this for a moment. If the gospel is that you're saved by grace through faith because you trust Jesus. If a person comes along to you and says, hey, you know, it's okay for you to believe the gospel, that you are saved by grace through faith, by trusting Jesus, plus baptism, plus sacraments, plus rituals, plus read my book, plus go door to door, plus do this, plus do that, plus do this, plus do that. At what point do you go, hey, wait a minute, that can't be right. You can't be saved by grace through faith plus works. You're either saved by grace through faith or you're not. Hey, wait a minute, you're not being completely honest with me. Or if a Korean person comes to you and says, guess what? Korea is the new Jerusalem. And I'm the Messiah. I'm the second coming of Jesus. And you go, you know, in the book of Acts, it says that when the the apostles saw Jesus ascend into heaven that an angel turned to them and said, why do you stand there looking into heaven? This same Jesus that you see leaving is going to come back in exactly the same way, physically, bodily. So, no offense, I mean, nothing against Korean people, but Jesus was a Jew, not Korean. We need to have these kinds of conversation. When a person says to you, the Bible's not true, and it doesn't mean what it says about this. According to John, if you have the spirit of God living inside of you, you should be able to go, hey, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right to me. The follower of Jesus is taught by the Holy Spirit Through the word of God. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? In other words, it's the Holy Spirit in you as the Bible is opened to you. I'm going to ask you a question. Who can best provide the meaning of God's word? 
God's Holy Spirit. So what if a human being decides that God's word is best interpreted by them apart from the Holy Spirit? Then that's when you should be suspect. The Holy Spirit confirms those things necessary and essential for salvation. Again, this doesn't mean that every believer understands everything about everything. What it must mean is that the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our heart provides a powerful mechanism for discernment about right from wrong, good from evil, truth from lies. Once again, Paul confirms and agrees with John's view about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul writes, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also, having believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. John says the Holy Spirit's living inside of you. You can trust him. Paul says the Holy Spirit's living inside of you, and you can trust him. John says... Abide in Christ. Abide in the gospel. The gospel is, gee, good news of God's grace to gee, guilty men. O, offered to all. O, obeyed by faith. S, salvation by S, substitutionary sacrifice. P, peace and pardon proclaimed through propitiation, eternal life given to everyone that believes with L, light, liberty, love. That's the gospel. Good news, God's grace, guilty men offered to all, obeyed by faith, salvation by a substitutionary sacrifice, peace, pardon proclaimed through propitiation, eternal life to everyone who believes. If somebody tells you something different, Send them to me. <laughs> Unless you can just remember everything that I just said. And then you can tell them yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. Lord, we want the gospel to live inside of us. The good news of God's grace to guilty men. Lord, especially now, Christmas really is about a Savior given, an Easter about a Savior risen, Jesus offered to all, obeyed by faith. Jesus offered to all, everyone who wants to be healed and cleansed and forgiven, Lord, it makes perfect sense to me that the word of God is our diet and our disinfectant. Lord, John helps us understand how a person can really know God. 
And that, Lord, it's not really possible to know God if we don't have a biblical view of God or we can't, in obedience, submit to God. Or if we reject the will of God or the plan of God. And Heavenly Father, for the person who says, I believe everything that the Bible says about Jesus, but repeatedly fails the test of obedience repeatedly fails the test of love, repeatedly fails the test of truth, repeatedly fails to live in the gospel. Lord, I pray that they would experience that anointing, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit inside their heart. so that they can obey and love, believe, and walk in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.